right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 120 for Crow 777 Radio. Uh, Jason Lindgren is with me today, and we're going to be talking about politics, more specifically the political parties and the kind of mind-warping nonsense that it is designed to be and how effective it's been implemented, particularly since about the year 2000 with the onset of cable news 24 hours nonstop by politically divided news, well, so-called news purveyors. You know, it was funny, I was reading some stuff today and I came across a quote from Kurt Vonnegut, who absolutely tells you the truth about how presidents get seated uh, in the United States of America. The people do not vote for presidents in this country. We cover this at length once again in the second hour when we outline for at least the second or third time how the Electoral College was made and the fact that the Electoral College is a backdoor to power, uh, the state of Rhode Island walking out at the creation of the Electoral College, leaving only the 12 of the 13 original colonies to implement what Rhode Island called a sneaky backdoor to power that would allow the same people who have always held power to continually go on holding power. Anyhow, the quote from Kurt Vonnegut, the first of two I'm going to read here, goes like this. The only difference between Hitler and Bush is that Hitler was elected. On the face of hearing that, you probably have many feelings, but actually think about what you're being told. He's claiming that Bush wasn't elected. Of course, this has to do with the whole hanging chads episode and everything else, but underneath the kind of double entendre, which isn't even really the quite the right way to describe it, he's telling you a fact that presidents in the United States of America are put in place not by votes from the people. But there's one more quote that I'm going to do in the intro here from Kurt Vonnegut from A Man Without a Country, which I thought is very apropos for our times. We live in the age of censorship. It was, I think, roughly the fall of 2017 when online control mechanisms began to wholesale censor the people of the world, basically. Not any one country, but just wherever they pleased, which is a bit ironic because supposedly we have a government in the United States of America that was built on freedom of speech and yet that government remains silent as all the censorship goes down they make laws to force people and I put that word in quotes to do certain things and yet a corporation is in fact a person given the rights of a living entity and somehow are exempt from the ideas that supposedly founded this country on free speech freedom of thought freedom of expression but here is the other quote, which is very timely, that I will read from Kurt Vonnegut, taken from A Man Without a Country. And on the subject of burning books, I want to congratulate the librarians, not famous for their physical strength or their powerful political connections or their great wealth, who all over this country have staunchly resisted anti-democratic bullies who have tried to remove certain books from their shelves and have refused to reveal to the thought police the names of the person who have checked out those titles. So the America I loved still exists. It is not in the White House or the Supreme Court or the Senate or the House of Representatives or certainly not the media. The America I love still exists at the front desk of our public libraries. On the tail of this quote, I would point out that if there was any governance for the human beings that live in this country, the idea of the censorship that's taking place that forces us to have a private website, to have a second hour to talk about things that matter, that would not be needed in a country where there was actually a government protecting the people by the standards they were brought up believing in and basically the ideas that founded this country. We were told all the way through school.
We live in the last generation that's probably going to see printed books in libraries. Probably my generation will likely be the last. When the last library closes its doors, all this information will be online. And starting a year ago, in the fall of 2017, censorship came to town. Anyhow, this was a bit on topic and a bit off topic, but let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and basically cover the social programming that is the two-party political system in the United States of America. By the way, are you red or are you blue? Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 120, and I have Jason Lindgren with me. We are going to be covering uh, the nonsensical nature of political parties, uh, which we did outline in our last uh, episode covering central banking. Uh, but we're going to try to demonstrate to people uh, what they're designed to do. It has nothing to do with certain mindsets electing certain people, quite to the contrary. And actually, in some of the quotes from central banking, that was proven outright. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Well, good morning to you. How goes it in Baton Rouge? Hot but nice. How's Rhode Island? Yeah. Hotter than Hades, man, and super wet. Um, but I'm almost, I can walk again, so I'm good to go. But anyhow, I don't really have anything. I think I'm, uh, you know, I don't know anybody. Do you know who Marty Leeds is? He's invited me on a show. I think I'm going to do that this Friday. Yes, I do. Very interesting fellow. Very good at math. Is he? Um, you know me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't look at anything online hardly at all. But anyhow, so let's go ahead and jump straight into this. And uh, Don't forget about Dave. Oh, that's right. So Jason and I both did Dave in the south of Spain. Uh, just finish it. Actually, what's the name of his? Let me look real quick. What's the name of his channel? That's not right. I'm just going to take a quick glance here. Actually, it is. Just Finish It Records is his YouTube channel. Um, he will also be running the uh, the trailer to Shoot the Moon, uh, the movie that Jason is making. But anyhow, uh, anything else you can think of, Jason? Good to go. Good to go, man. Let's jump right in. We should probably do a real big fat disclaimer on this one. For anyone who's not aware, history is in fact a lie agreed upon. We will be going through the acceptable timeline, which is in fact a lie agreed upon. There we have it. Raise your glasses and say cheers, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Napoleon. So I'm going to start off with the always interesting but also suspect Manly P. Hall. World democracy was the secret dream of the great classical philosophers. Thousands of years before Columbus, they were aware of the existence of our Western Hemisphere and selected it to be the site of the philosophic empire. The brilliant plan of the ancients has survived to our time, and it will continue to function until the great work is accomplished. The American nation desperately needs a vision of its own purpose. Yeah. Okay, man. Whatever, Manly P. Hall. So are we talking about democracy or are we talking about the great work? Um, I take umbrage with this nonsense. Um, the idea, you know, if someone in this world holds an accurate, true picture somehow of ancient ideas, maybe in fact these are ancient ideas, but they sure as hell didn't make it into our time. After all, you and I live in the United States, which is supposed to be this big bastion for democracy. And in this episode, we're going to demonstrate that no one, no one, no person, average person has ever voted to seat a president, has never happened. And we'll even describe how the Electoral College was set up. But anyhow, I think this bullet point is, is more about a great work as opposed to democracy. And I led uh, into the subject with Manly P. Hall because a lot of the people who founded this country were of the same brotherhood as Manly P. Hall. There you go. And, and he can't help himself until the great work is accomplished. Well, I'll tell you something. 
you know, that, that everyone out there who's not in a secret society is probably thinking, how does this work so great if it needs to be hidden, right? If it needs to be just a select few members, and mostly men for that matter, ignoring nearly half of the population of this world, uh, I would ask. And when we start to look at government and realize how many of them were in secret societies, the telling thing indeed, these are not the average people, and it can easily be questioned even if you knew nothing, do they have the interest of the people in their hearts? Do they? And I would suggest that no, the opposite is true. So let's start off with a definition of what a political party is. It's defined as an organized group of people with at least roughly similar political aims and opinions that seek to influence public policy by getting its candidates elected to public office. So I guess this is like partially acceptable. They are in fact looking to influence public policy, but I would restate that. They're, they're looking to influence the thoughts of the public. After all, uh, when you think about the idea of democracy that we all learned in high school, truly, it's actually not a democracy. It's more like a republic if you want to accept that definition, but that's not even true. Um, people will argue that the Electoral College is this, that, or the other thing, or it shows that this is truly a republic. But I beg to differ, and we'll even cover how that was set up. But political parties, as we learned from our central banking episode last time, um, by the way, I should ask, Jason, did you lift the quote at all for this episode from the intro? Yes, I did. Okay, so I won't go into it, but basically what it comes down to, political parties are designed to do an overarching single thing, and that is divide people and get them to waste energy on, on topics that have no importance. That is the stated fact by the people in power. So go ahead, Jason. So let's get something out here right at the front that the social engineering regarding politics and how the government works and all that is constantly at work. For instance, you will always hear in mainstream news, just as a for instance, that we're a democracy or that we're going to other countries to help them to bring them democracy. Well, we're not a democracy. We are a democratic republic, and those are two very different things. So right there, you can see how they're not even telling the truth about the general overview of what our government system even is. Good point. How many times have you heard we're going to bring these poor suckers in some other country democracy? They go tip it over, jack it up. Um, basically, what ends up happening is they usually get a central bank. Um, and as we pointed out last time around, it doesn't matter who's in charge of a country uh, via governance. It is the banking that controls everything. Um, but to get back to the point here, Jason, there are still, you know, I, I hear it from people all the time. They want to act like the Electoral College is the proof in the pudding that we are some kind of a republic. But again, it's not. It's a backdoor to power. We'll cover these things as we go along. A democracy is basically mob rules. Whatever the majority votes is what goes as the laws or the decision-making process. A democratic republic means that people are voted for into office by the general public, and then those people make the laws. And that's the big difference between them. And it's a very important difference. Right. Well, if you're going to go, you know, in the papers and on the news when they spout off that they're bringing democracy somewhere, what you said is a critical key. Um, there's no democracy here, for crying out loud. And that's not wholly true. I mean, if you go down to some of the small townships, even in the area where I live in, still people do show up at, at count what they call uh, town hall meetings and literally uh, each person their votes. But the problem with that is, is when a town reaches a certain size, it no longer works. There are just too many people and it becomes impossible to control. But for the most part, at the upper levels that matter, there's absolutely no democracy. So getting into the mainstream history of all this, 
political factions or parties began to form during the struggle over ratification of the federal constitution of 1787. Friction between them increased as attention shifted from the creation of a new federal government to the question of how powerful that federal government should be. This is actually a huge issue during the formation of this country. The Federalists, led by Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, who's quite popular right now with the musical, wanted a strong central government, while the Anti-Federalists, led by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, advocated states' rights instead of centralized power. Federalists coalesced around the commercial sector of the country, while their opponents drew their strength from those favoring an agrarian society. The ensuing partisan battles led George Washington to warn of the baneful effects of the spirit of party in his farewell address as president of the United States. Damn, Jason, so much to take apart in this bullet point. First of all, George Washington is held up in every high school and every you know grade school in this country as the first president, which he was not. He was preceded by many presidents, and Jason and I have covered that in past episodes. But the idea here that the government is trying to figure out how powerful uh, the federal government would be is laughable, because one of the things he mentions here is Secretary of the Treasury, hint, 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 is Alexander Hamilton. In the last episode, I did actually quite a bit of research on this gentleman and found out that he hid his Jewishness. Actually, according to some of the historical accounts that I read that are not so popular, uh, he was born within view of Mount Zion, was the way they put it, to put a firm period on the end of their sentence. As far as I can tell, of all the big names, you know, that may as well be comic book characters in most cases, um, it was Andrew Jackson who kicked hard against the banks. So the idea that there is some kind of a wrestling match to see how powerful government could be is a bit laughable when we have covered over and over and over quotes by the true ruling classes that say, we don't give a damn who's in charge of anything as long as we control the banks, we run it all. So I would just state that these are the kind of political arguments that are put out in front of people, so they expend their energies, you know, arguing one way or another on it, when in fact, true power is, ha- is held by banking. Absolutely it is. And to give you an idea that George Washington knew what was going on, this is from his farewell address on September 19th, 1796. Count the ways. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. There it is. I mean, whether or not we can accept anything about this man, since it's, you know, the the overarching lie that's told about him is that he is the founding father, the first president of the United States, which we've demonstrated is not true. Uh, basically, in this stated quote that is said to have come from him, he's warning people about what parties do. Um, and that's what Jason and I are going to do as we go along here. Now, to back up a little bit in time, the first attempt to get a government going in the colonies was the Albany Plan of Union from 1754. And this was a plan to place the British North American colonies under a more centralized government. On July 10th, 1754, representatives from seven of the British North American colonies adopted the plan. Although never carried out, the Albany Plan was the first important proposal to conceive of the colonies as a collective whole united under one government. Prior to the Albany Congress, a number of intellectuals and government officials had formulated and published several tentative plans for centralizing the colonial governments of North America. Imperial officials saw the advantages of bringing the colonies under closer authority and supervision, while colonists saw the need to organize and defend common interests. 
One figure of emerging prominence among this group of intellectuals was Pennsylvanian Benjamin Franklin. Earlier, Dr. Franklin had written to friends and colleagues proposing a plan of voluntary union for the colonies. Upon hearing of the Albany Congress, his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, published the political cartoon Join or Die, which illustrated the importance of union by comparing the colonies to pieces of a snake's body, an image that would be reused later on. The Pennsylvania government appointed Franklin as a commissioner to the Congress, and on his way, Franklin wrote to several New York commissioners outlining short hints towards a scheme for uniting the northern colonies by means of an act of the British Parliament. I mean, if you go through this, it's funny how um, our history is glossed over over and over again. So even if you go back to the beginning of what you were just saying, I mean, it starts out by saying the British North American colonies. Then in the middle, it talks about imperial officials saw an advantage. And then, of course, you close out by talking uh, about some kind of an act from the British Parliament. In fact, when we're all in school, we're being told that all these people hated England for all these reasons. So they jumped in boats and came to the new world. But even if you take that apart logically, which I've mentioned many times, um, they came to this place and then they named it after the place they hated. They landed in New England. Every town, every city around where I am is, with very few exceptions, is a name that was lifted from England. You can see what's going on here. I've even seen people do work to show that George Washington and King George may well have been the same person. I may go with that at some point. The point I'm, um, the picture I'm making here is we're all being convinced that there's like this democracy forming when in fact we were never separated from the British powers. That is very true. And even though there was a, I, I guess, a temporary separation on certain levels. Once the bankers got their, their footholds in again, it just didn't matter anymore. You can call yourself whatever you like. But the attachments were there and the control system was there. Well, in the last bullet point um, in the neighborhood of 1787, um, you're already talking about a treasurer, uh, you know, the secretary of the treasurer being Alexander Hamilton, who's a ninja. He's hiding his true ethnicity, um, and he's also going to pave the way, as we covered in our last episode, for central banks to come in. So while they've got everyone arguing, supposedly, about what kind of a government or who's going to hold the most power, is it going to be the states, is it going to be a central, is it going to, the, the truth is, they're secretly lining up banks, which in fact will hold all the power, regardless of who or what is in charge of the political ideas and infrastructure. Now, to show you just how this country got founded and what was behind it and how things got set up for later on, this is from freemasoninformation.com. Illustrious brother Ben Franklin and Freemasonry. Ben Franklin has long stood as one of the patriarchs of American Freemasonry. As one of the most prominent founding fathers, today Franklin is known for little more than the face on the $100 bill. Yet the history of the man behind such an honor is rich with industriousness, inventiveness, and political genius, such that he is perhaps one of a few who could be considered a modern-day Renaissance man, both in and out of the fraternity. Franklin was born on January 17, 1706, in Boston, Massachusetts, as calculated by the new style, Gregorian calendar dating. Yes, they make a point on the Freemason website to point this out. His intelligence and wisdom helped him excel as an author, scientist, philosopher, statesman, and postmaster. As well known as Ben Franklin is as a founding father of the United States, he is also known as an illustrious Freemason.
Yeah, um, so here it all is, but I think the main point that I'll make here is the as calculated by the new style Gregorian ca calendar, that dating system, and I think what is being pointed at is as opposed to a more accurate style, which would have been Julian. Basically, what I have come to accept is likely true. The Gregorian calendar is created to facilitate commerce. That's what it's there for. But more than that, it obscures history because most of history um, in the past few hundred years, if there is such a time, was ac actually clocked using the Julian calendar. And so this comes from freemasoninformation.com. Anyone can go out and look at the number of cornerstones that are using what we would call the Jewish style of year dating. And uh, they're also tracking the Julian calendar at the same time. In other words, they're not using the Gregorian calendar. And that tells you something about Freemasonry in general. And I'll ask the question question again. Um, if the majority of the people being supposedly governed in the United States of America, because I live here and I understand what goes on here, have no idea what the great work is, then how can it be great? It's being hidden. If it was a great thing, it wouldn't need to be hidden. So I'll ask openly, if there is a high-ranking Freemason out there that hears this, why don't you come on the show and go ahead and outline for us the great work that apparently we're all supposed to be subject to? You point to the Founding Fathers, the so-called Founding Fathers, who in my view are basically about like Batman and Superman at this point. Um, it's mostly, mostly man, myth, and magic that we get, apparently. Um, I, I, I will say... Come on the show and tell us what the great work is that's supposedly being implemented for the majority of the population of this world. So there's that, Jason. Well, the interesting thing is Freemasons are sworn to lie to the profane. And who are the profane? All of us that aren't members of the Brotherhood. So anything a Freemason would say could pretty much be accepted as you got a 50-50 chance. They might be lying, they might be telling the truth, but they are under no obligation to tell us the truth. And that tells you something about the organization, doesn't it? If you want to act like there's some kind of a democratic government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people, and yet we know flat out that the supposed founding fathers were all in secret fraternities who will call us profane if we are not in their fraternity. And of course, this, this does not include almost every living female. Uh, there are very few living females. There are groups like, what is it, the Red Star or the North Star? I've forgotten, Jason. Eastern Star. Eastern Star. Um, my point being is they're excluding the vast majority of everybody who's supposedly being governed, and that is not acceptable. If it can face the light of day, then maybe it's worth something, but clearly this stuff is hidden and cannot face the light of day. Well, as I've heard it said from Freemasons, if you are not one of us, you are nothing. That's a funny thing, coming from one human being to another human being, because if you cut either one of us, we're both going to bleed. So basically, what is being judged here is circumstance. Someone was by chance in a position or born into a family where they were going to be put into this fraternity, and the other people who by chance did not get there are profane somehow. Uh, it's a weak argument, and by logical deduction, it holds no merit, in my view. Interestingly enough, you can go up to the door of the lodge and knock on it, and ask to join. But they are not supposed to ask you. Well, I've also heard that you've got to be, uh, what's it called when a couple people vouch for you? You have to have two people vouch for you to even be considered for entranceship, yes. Right, but with, with so much of the research that we've done, um, what it appears to me, and this started all the way back um, and is outlined in books like The Devil's Pulpit, uh, of people who got their hands on some of the highest Masonic texts at the time, that basically what was going on, and we've read this account over and over and over, is the highest reaches of Freemasonry, apparently, are lying 
to all the lower levels. Very few people from the lower levels will ever go above the Royal Arch degrees or the Hebraic degrees or whatever you want to call them to actually start to be told truth. And some of the recent episodes, like even the Paul McCartney, the Paul is Dead episode we did by Mr. Sir Paul McCartney's own words, they are satanic, and the idea is to lie to them until the few that are chosen to go high are actually in so deep they can't get out. These are the accounts we have. So I would ask, uh, with all these public accounts that anyone could get their hands on, why would anyone ever go knock on the door of a place like that when it's labeled satanic by people who supposedly know? Well, here's the thing. Most Masons, a lot of them, I should say, a very large amount of them, don't ever get further than a Master Mason. A Master Mason is a third-degree Freemason of their Blue Lodge. They don't go any further. What you can do, should you so choose, is go either into the Scottish Rite or the York Rite. From what I understand of this, you don't actually find out that you've been swearing blood oaths to Lucifer until the 30th degree ritual of the Scottish Rite. And that's when you find out a little bit more in the 30th, and then the 31st, and then the 32nd. There's also an honorary 33rd degree that very few people are chosen for, but characters such as Buzz Aldrin have been granted this honor. And that's the lodge that is in Washington, D.C. So there's obviously a very select group that only get let into this higher echelon of Freemasonry. And I suspect there's more beyond that, but that's never been publicly admitted to. Right. We've done these accounts over and over and over, and the Luciferian idea is pretty much attachable to any elite organization that we've ever looked at. But again, let's ask the simple question. If if Luciferian is such a great thing for all you people involved in the great work to be endeavoring for, put it in the light of day. What's Lucifer? Come on the show and tell me what Lucifer means to you. Um, tell us why you guys expend so much energy following these ideals. Tell me why the idea of Prometheus encodes the idea of Lucifer, which was just a retelling supposedly back further in time. And I will always maintain, if these things cannot be brought out in the light of day and talked about, then they're suspect. They're more than suspect. Um, I'll put all that out, and I'll invite anyone who's in a position to understand these things to come on to a very polite show, and we'll address these under the most adult of conditions, and you can inform us about all these things that seem to be hidden from the light of day. And why do I keep bringing this up? Well, these are the people, predominantly, who founded this country, and all the things we're discussing today came from their minds. So, continuing on, no one can be sure of exactly when Benjamin Franklin was initiated into St. John's Lodge, but it was sometime during the year 1730 or 31, most likely during the February meeting of St. John's Lodge in Philadelphia. Before his initiation into the Freemason Brotherhood, Benjamin Franklin made some lighthearted jokes about fraternity in his publication, The Pennsylvania Gazette. One source says that his joking was to advertise himself to St. John's Lodge so that when he applied, he would not be regarded as a stranger. After being initiated, however, Franklin's writing in the Gazette changed because of his Masonic influences. Thereafter, he published many positive and affirming stories in the Gazette about the craft. These publications have become the core for understanding the history of Freemasons in the United States, especially in Pennsylvania. Franklin was in no way a simple and ordinary member of the Masonic Lodge. He was appointed as the Junior Grand Warden of the Provincial Grand Lodge in Pennsylvania in the year 1732, and as the Grand Master on June 24, 1734. In 1734, he also printed the first Masonic book in the United States. 
His Mason book was the publication of Anderson's Constitutions. Franklin was quickly elected as secretary of St. John's Lodge, and he held the position from 1735 until 1738. Franklin continued to be an active member of the fraternity, and he continued to be elected and appointed for many positions. In March of 1752, Benjamin Franklin was put onto a committee for the first Masonic building in the United States. The lodge was to be in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Benjamin Franklin was not only involved in Freemasonry in the United States, he also traveled abroad to take part in meetings and lodges which came about in his diplomatic missions to Europe. In November of 1760, he was entered upon the minutes as the Provincial Grand Master during the Grand Lodge of England's meeting in Crown and Anchor, London, a position he was elected into in June of 1760. In April of 1778, he was in Paris to assist with the initiation of Voltaire into the Lodge of Nine Sisters. He continued to be affiliated with the Lodge of Nine Sisters for years through the funeral services for Voltaire and as master of the Lodge for two years. Voltaire had such affection for Franklin that it was written, The aged Voltaire, who in the last year of his life came in triumph to Paris, grappled Franklin to himself as with hooks of steel. He placed his withered hands in benediction on the head of Franklin's grandson as if to confer the philosophy and inspiration of the epoch on the third generation. The two great thinkers were taken together to the theater and at the close of the play were called upon the stage while the excited thousands cried out, Solon and Socrates. Benjamin Franklin passed away on April 17, 1790. He will always be remembered by the citizens of the United States as an intelligent founding father and scientist. For Freemasons, however, he is so much more. Franklin's Masonic career spanned a period of 60 years, achieving in his day one of the highest Masonic accords, that of an illustrious brother. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, on the face of it, Jason, when people in this country go through school and they're taught in grade school and in high school about Benjamin Franklin, everything you just read will never be mentioned in the same way that when we look at supposed NASA astronauts, um, they're all Masons and high-ranking from the Apollo missions anyhow. Um, These things are hidden, and they're hidden for good reason. If we consider what we're talking about here, what we're going to get into, which is the political parties, basically Republican and Democrat, which have been used to divide the people so effectively in this country since the onset of cable news anyhow, um, what do you suppose a man like Franklin, having heard all that, is really interested in? Is he interested in the government of the United States, or is he interested in going to the Grand Lodge of England's meeting crown and anchor in London? You know, you can you can draw these parallels all the way down the line. It's pretty clear that the most important things in the supposed founding fathers' lives like this are seem to be Masonic influences, which are hidden from history and have little to do with the supposed democracy they are founding. Well, it's pretty obvious that he had his fingers in many pies, and goodness only knows what he was getting into to bring back to the fledgling United States and what influences all of these different things had on what eventually became the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, it just none of it fits. If we hated England so much or the people back in the day hated it so much that they all jumped on some boat for a treacherous journey where they might all starve or die or go down in a storm to form this new separate thing. And every at every turn, they're back over under the crown doing this, that or the other thing, as is demonstrated in the Franklin bullet point here. 
that's not really my main problem, though. We can demonstrate that all day. My main problem is that truly where these guys were putting so much effort is not part of the supposed historical timeline. And to boot, Franklin was a newspaper man, supposedly, before any of this happened. And we know what media does. And it's been known the value of controlling messaging since probably the days of Greek amphitheaters, if there was such a time. A lot of the Freemasons' own mouths, they, they blatantly said that he used the Pennsylvania Gazette to paint the craft in a positive light. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, because we can find accounts all day where supposedly there were sects all over the early founding of this country that were hardcore against Freemasonry. So if there's any truth to any of that, what we see is Franklin, you know, pushing against the tide there, right? Trying to make them look good, use the paper to make Masonry seem like a good thing, when in fact, the people who were agrarian, part of nature, doing things like this were hardcore against this you know, suspicious secret society. And there are plenty of accounts anyone can look up to see that this is true. And why would he need to paint them in a positive light in the first place? I would say because they were suspect to a lot of these very devout Christians' minds. Right. It's a bit it's a bit like, you know, this this all this stuff coming out of NASA lately where they say, see, we told you the earth was round. Let me tell you something. If a thing is a thing, it needs no defense. And if people are being narrow minded or ridiculous, calling the color blue red when it truly is not red, it's blue. It needs no defense. It will be what it is. Yet this is the, the same thing. We see the defense of a thing that needs defense. And in the same way, NASA's message needs defense. Um, they were using newspapers to try to make the craft, quote, unquote, look positive, to spin a positive light on it using the, the media. Now, Manly P. Hall also has something to say about Benjamin Franklin from his book, The Secret Destiny of America. Historians have never ceased to wonder at the enormous psychological influence which Franklin exercised in colonial politics. But up to the present day, few indeed are those who have realized that the source of his power lay in the secret societies to which he belonged and of which he was the appointed spokesman. Franklin was not a lawmaker, but his words became law. Beneath the homely wisdom which he circulated in his almanac, under the pseudonym of Poor Richard, was a profundity of scientific and philosophic learning. He understood both the farmer and the philosopher and could speak the languages of both. So the secret destiny of America just more concisely said what I rambled on about in the last bullet point. The source of Franklin's power lay in his in his connection to the secret societies, basically. Um, you know, there it is, lock, stock, and barrel. That's one Freemason freely admitting what another Freemason was doing. From 1774 to 1789, the Continental Congress served as the government of the 13 American colonies and later the United States. The First Continental Congress, which was comprised of delegates from the colonies, met in 1774 in reaction to the Coercive Act, a series of measures imposed by the British government on the colonies in response to their resistance to new taxes. In 1775, the Second Continental Congress convened after the American Revolutionary War from 1775 until 1783 had already begun. In 1776, it took the momentous step of declaring America's independence from Britain. Five years later, the Congress ratified the first national constitution, the Articles of Confederation, under which the country would be governed until 1789, when it was replaced by the current U.S. Constitution. And that is from a mainstream source, and I would say that the current Constitution isn't exactly the same as the original one from 1789. 
Well, not only that, the date 1776 coincides with more secret society nonsense from Europe. So let's speak for a moment about the Great Seal of the United States from 1782. Among the ancients, a fabulous bird called the Phoenix is described by early writers such as Clement, Herodotus, and Pliny. In size and shape, it resembled the eagle, but with certain differences. The body of the phoenix is one covered with glossy purple feathers, and the plume in its tail are alternately blue and red. The head of the bird is light in color, and about its neck is a circlet of golden plumage. At the back of its head, the phoenix has a crest of feathers of brilliant color. Only one of these birds was supposed to live at a time, with its home in the distant parts of Arabia in a nest of frankincense and myrrh. The phoenix, it was said, lives for 500 years, and at its death, its body opens and the newborn phoenix emerges. Because of this symbolism, the phoenix is generally regarded as representing immortality and resurrection. All symbols have their origin in something tangible, and the phoenix is one sign of the secret orders of the ancient world and of the initiate of those orders, for it was common to refer to one who had been accepted into the temples as a man twice born or reborn. Wisdom confers a new life, and those who become wise are born again. The design on the reverse of the seal is even more obviously, obviously related to the old mysteries. Here is represented the Great Pyramid of Giza, composed of 13 rows of masonry showing 72 stones. The pyramid is without a capstone, and above its platform floats a triangle containing the all-seeing eye surrounded by rays of light. So, so much has been done on this kind of Masonic or secret society symbolism put into the currency, which of course is issued in this country by the central bank owned by private families, which is a private corporation that only exists to profit for itself. Nothing to do with concern for the people of the country it is supposedly central to. So let's go a different way here. Um, let's look at the Phoenix. Um, knowing all that we know now um, and the amount of episodes we've covered the meaning of language, let's think about the, the city of Phoenix for a minute, right? Someone took the time to name Phoenix, Arizona, Phoenix. And as we can see, these very old ideas or apparently old ideas are encoded even into the back of the money by secret societies. So if we are to critically look at a place like Phoenix, we have to wonder, what, in the long game that we constantly point to, what part will Phoenix play? the idea of rising from the ashes, these things. But I'll point out a thing I know firsthand. Living in San Diego, uh, as I did uh, for most of my life, it's basically a desert, and there is always a water problem there. In my lifetime, next to nothing has been done to bank water, to make more holding facilities for water and these kinds of things. They have made a couple of runs trying to privatize the water source. I think it was a company called Neptune that was going to take ocean water. But basically, if I remember correctly, they wanted all the people of San Diego to pay for the facility and then the water to be privatized, which was shot down. The reason I'm even bringing this up is the city of Phoenix is in the heart of a gnarly desert, not just kind of a chaparral desert like San Diego, where it even has ocean that could be desalinated. It's in the middle of a desert, but they have been banking water for years and years and years. And whenever you look at a place, always look at the airport. So I know I didn't say a lot about Phoenix, but I invite everyone to go look at the Phoenix airport and to consider the water issues around that place in the middle of the desert. There's something special about the city of Phoenix, I will add. I've been there. 
I like it. It's very beautiful in, in certain regards. I love the skyline. But, yeah, there's something about that place there. It's very interesting. I'm certain it will play some role in the long game. How could it not having the name that it has when, in fact, you just drew the line to the phoenix and the, the encoding on what we call money? And this is what I want to point out why I brought up the Great Seal. For something that is always touted as this Christian nation, there's no Christian symbolism that I see embedded right from the beginning to even demonstrate that this was being made by people with strict Christian values. And I think some of the Founding Fathers did have them, but it was certainly not being reflected in any of their imagery. Well, I think what you pointed out is it doesn't matter what political party says what or who is seated as president. The true power is going to be held by that very thing you just pointed to, the Federal Reserve note. The privately issued Federal Reserve note from central banking is the ultimate arbiter of power responsible for such things as the Great Depression or any number of wars, the true power center in any nation with a central bank resides with the central bank. And the symbolism here, uh, drawn from secret societies and other places, is put on the note that will be driving that, that the wielding of that power. Now we're going to get into the mainstream history of the party systems, and you can see as time goes on how they whittled it down to just two parties, which of course today are the Republicans and the Democrats. But the thing I'd like to point out is something I've heard repeated by many people in different ways, and that yes, there might be two different parties, but it's two wings of the same bird, and the bird only has one head, doesn't it? <laughs> it's called the central bank. That's the head <laughs> of the bird. Yeah. Okay. The first party system is a model of American politics used in history and political science to periodize the political party system that existed in the United States between approximately 1792 and 1824. It featured two national parties competing for control of the presidency, the Congress, and the states. The Federalist Party, created largely by Alexander Hamilton, and the rival Jeffersonian Democratic-Republican Party, formed by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, usually called at the time the Republican Party. The Federalists were dominant until 1800, while the Republicans were dominant after 1800. Well, I wonder if there was ever a time during this period when money was not dominant. Um, <laughs> you know? So here again, Alexander Hamilton, the guy who hid his, uh, his genetic ancestry and was in charge of the Treasury, uh, is founding one of these parties. And we showed flat out from a speech in 1924, which we will reiterate again, what the bankers intended to do with the political parties. But go ahead, Jason. You know, I'm curious, are you aware that there is a major Broadway play about Alexander Hamilton? Not specifically, but I've heard that it exists, yes. It's interesting. They, it seems that they've got the uh, history fairly well accurate, but I keep hearing it because my own daughter loves it, her and her friends. And I'm wondering how this play about early American culture and the Revolutionary War actually was brought into prominence. It it's just kind of strikes my curiosity, and I should probably dig into it a little bit more. I'm sure there's a story there. After all, we know what media and the stage are for, don't we? It sways mindsets, doesn't it? Absolutely. Historians and political scientists use the phrase second party system as a term of periodization to designate the political party system operating in the United States from about 1828 to 1854 after the first party system ended. The system was characterized by rapidly rising levels of voter interest beginning in 1828 as demonstrated by election day turnouts, rallies, partisan newspapers, and high degrees of personal loyalty to parties. Two major parties dominated the political landscape, 
the Democratic Party, led by Andrew Jackson, and the Whig Party, assembled by Henry Clay from the National Republicans and from other opponents of Jackson. Minor parties included the Anti-Masonic Party, an important innovator from 1827 to 1834, the Abolitionist Liberty Party in 1840, and the Anti-Slavery Free Soil Party in 1848 and 1852. The second party system reflected and shaped the political, social, economic, and cultural currents of the Jacksonian era until it was succeeded by the third party system. Frank Towers specifies an important ideological divide. Democrats stood for the sovereignty of the people, as expressed in popular demonstrations, constitutional conventions, and majority rule as a general principle of governing, whereas Whigs advocated the rule of law written in unchanging constitutions and protections for minority interests against majority tyranny. So you can see the same thing. They pick out these sides where they can divide people um, and and they get people going. But I, I'm not even going to go down that road until we get to the Electoral College, I think, Jason. But here they refer to it as the Jacksonian era. And all the research I did around the central banking, it appears to me that if Andrew Z Jackson existed in any way, shape or form that resembles the histories we can get our hands on, he actually pushed as hard as he could against the creation of central banking. So that's something of note. On the other side, we have Alexander Hamilton, who's hiding the fact that he's Jewish, who's in charge of the United States Treasury and going down the money route and paving the way for central banking. And if any of this is to be trusted, apparently, and it's hard to fathom because, well, we, we can say this, even attached to Andrew Jackson is the supposed idea of how the Democratic Party gets the donkey as their logo. Now, the Democratic Party will claim over and over and over that that is not their official logo, which is a bit laughable because we've seen it our whole lives, and they never created one that is official, so clearly they're okay with the use of the donkey, but supposedly it was it came from Andrew Jackson's time when he was referred to as a jackass, and the reason he was referred as a jackass is because he was pushing against the central bankers, um, as far as I could tell, Jason. Well, even in those days, it's quite apparent that the bankers had extremely powerful connections into all the media and everything. So, of course, you're going to use that media to paint a picture of your major opponent as undesirable. Right. I mean, they had their people in there from the get-go. Alexander Hamilton proves it. And the fact that he was a ninja and had to hide who he truly was is all the more evidence um, to show. But what's he in charge of? He's in charge of the Treasury, of course. And uh, anyone can go back to the last episode, 119, and listen to the central banking and how we implicate Hamilton, who actually ends up on the $10 bill. It's a bit ironic that Jackson ends up on the 20 but I'm sure that if any of what we have said here is true, it must be a poke in the eye of some sort. And it's just extremely important to point out to everyone that right from the get-go, once the United States was founded, the central banks immediately tried to get in there. It wasn't worth England to keep throwing troops in this militaristic endeavor to keep fighting the colonies when they realized they could just do it financially. It didn't matter what name the colonies had. If you control the money system, you control it all anyway. Well, there's a further line to be drawn here. Do you remember, and you probably don't, I would have to look it up at this point, Jason, but um, as we demonstrated, uh, the Bank of England is the model that all central banking was drawn from. So already in these times that we're talking about, within the span of a certain period, um, the, the central bank called the Bank of England, controlled by Rothschilds and other money, secret money families, is in place. And it's in place to serve as a paradigm, as a model, so that they can replicate these ideas across all other places. You know, I would submit, Jason, that, you know, this, this Masonic great work, where does central banking 
fit into the great work, I would ask. You know, that is a very good question and a line of research we should plunge down. Yeah, it would be interesting to know. And I'll tell you what, it is a certain religious persuasion that is pushing the central banking idea. And also we see in masonry that they constantly use the Jewish or Hebraic date system. How many cornerstones have you seen that use the 5,000 number? Well, that's that's the Jewish way of counting. Uh, and by the way, as far as I can tell, uh, the Jewish way of counting calendar years goes back further than anyone that I'm aware of. And that's very interesting indeed, something to take note of when we're trying to dissect all these histories and how they date things and where they line up in supposed mainstream history. You know, I will maintain that the whole adoption of the Gregorian calendar is about commerce. It's about corporation. It's about all the things we've talked about with the straw man and the currency, hint, hint, hint. Um, This calendar is to facilitate that working of a takeover of everything. Um, And the Julian calendar, by the way, as we have shown in past episodes, is still tracked by the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., the main purveyor of time tracking here in this country with their supposed cesium clock. When Jason and I went to start to take apart the birth and death dates of supposed royals that had been reported, we hit a roadblock really quickly because we realized that it's not possible in a single week to put together a show when in fact the the lives of these people were tracked in the Julian calendar and then reported in the Gregorian calendar. A lot of work. I mean, it could be done, but it is a lot of work. And it really jumped out at me that the Freemasons themselves pointed out in their own public information of the difference of the Gregorian calendar versus the Julian. They obviously track this stuff. It makes me wonder if high-ranking Freemasons are somehow outside of the straw man idea, which I suspect they probably are. Because if you're in a society and you're high up like that and you're using the Julian calendar, you're not even using the calendar of commerce except for the public view. Um, It would be an interesting thing to know that if you get above royal arch degrees or whatever it might be called, are you still subject to the ideas around the common man not being able to own anything and living under the shadow of a straw man identity? The one thing I've always wanted to know is what is above the 33rd degree because I assume that there's more going on. But when you're at that point, I'm assuming that you are so into the system, you are so bought in and part of it that at that point you're never going to spill the beans. Well, in the Paul McCartney book, which I have real problems with, Billy's back, he starts to go into the 33 degrees, according to him, and we've done what it means astrologically about the sun doing 33 degrees before it leaves a sign. Um, According to Sir Paul McCartney, and it's been actually reported in lots of places, there are 33 vertebra in the human spine. What he's claiming is there's another 13 degrees that nobody knows about above that, and it has to do with 13 divisions of what's above the spine, or basically the head. Um, There's all that, Jason, but I haven't looked at it that much. And speaking of all this Freemason stuff, the Anti-Masonic Party, also known as the Anti-Masonic Movement, was the first third party in the United States. It strongly opposed Freemasonry as a single-issue party and later aspired to become a major party by expanding its platform to take positions on other issues. After emerging as a political force in the late 1820s, most of the anti-Masonic Party's members joined the Whig Party in the 1830s, and the party disappeared after 1838. The party was founded in the aftermath of the disappearance of William Morgan, a former Mason who had become a prominent critic of the organization. Many believed that the Masons had murdered Morgan for speaking out against Masonry, and many churches and other groups condemned Masonry. 
as many Masons were prominent businessmen and politicians, the backlash against the Masons was also a form of anti-elitism. Mass opposition to Masonry eventually coalesced into a political party. Before and during the presidency of John Quincy Adams, the United States endured a period of political realignment and the anti-Masons emerged as an important third-party alternative to Andrew Jackson's Democrats and Adams's National Republicans. In New York, the anti-Masons supplanted the National Republicans as the primary opposition to the Democrats at the time. <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be ironic to learn that the anti-Masonic party was actually set up by Masons? Because with all the episodes we did, that's all I could think about the whole time you were reading that, Jason. Well, that wouldn't surprise me at all, because don't they quite often set up their own opposition? The name Alex Jones comes to mind. Exactly. It didn't last for long, either did it. And of course, wrapped up in all this, we already have Andrew Jackson, who was shown to be pushing hard against the central banks. So I think what we're looking here is just a bit of obfuscation. Um, and I would not be surprised if I could have a magic spyglass to look back and see that it was pushed put together by Masonic interests or central banking interests in the first place. Or it could be that while there were some people who opposed it, they quickly infiltrated and destroyed it from within. It could be either of those. Either one makes sense, because no matter what, the Masons aren't going to allow a major political party to exist that worked directly against them. Well, there's another funny thing about this bullet point. You said President Adams, and so you're thinking, which Adams? You know, there, there's a special bloodline there, right? There's more than one Adams going to be president. Um, it just goes to show what we're talking about. There's never been a time when what we were told in high school was true, that just some kid born in bug's ear nowhere could ascend the presidency. Doesn't work that way. And even all the way back here with President Adams, which one? John Quincy, in this case, being president. These are all bloodlines. These are all chosen people. And we will get to the point where we demonstrate that it is the Electoral College that chooses these people. People, and we will further demonstrate that there were states that walked out the back door saying they'd have no part of this nonsense. So that does close the first hour, and we will be talking about a number of things that would probably get censored in the first hour now that censorship too thinks they can control what we think about, what we talk about. Anyways, at the posting of this episode, there will be 120 hours of free content at crow777radio.com. You do not need a login. If you would like to come over and support free speech, the second hour is basically there for five bucks a month. It's a cup of coffee. And without that private website, we would not be able to talk about things that matter at this point. And I'm not even kidding. Anyhow, there it is, the wrap-up for hour one of episode 120. Hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com. Cheers. 